0: Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. So just a few days ago, Larry Householder the former Speaker of the Ohio House of Representatives, was sentenced to 20 years in prison for his role in a $60 million bribery scheme. It was the largest corruption scandal in our state's history. And before receiving his sentence, Householder stood before U.S. District Judge Timothy Black, and he petitioned for leniency. He asked that he not get such a harsh sentence. He said, I wasn't power hungry. Uh, my wife and I, we gave every ounce of energy to make life better for others. And he said that his family and his friends were the ones who would suffer more from a prison sentence than himself. But Judge Black was not uh, moved by Householder's appeal. In fact, he quoted back to Householder some statements that he had made earlier, statements I can't repeat here, but that basically proved he was willing to harm other people and their families Just to not be found out, just to keep his scheme under wraps. He was not willing to extend the same compassion to others that he was now seeking from the state. And so Judge Black gives Householder the maximum allowable penalty, calling him a bully with a lust for power who thought he was above everybody else. Householder was once one of Ohio's most powerful politicians. But his conspiracy was found out, and now he's been humbled before the watching world. For some of us, this news just kind of went past us this week, maybe. There's been a lot of headlines, uh, and there often are. seems like this kind of news is always breaking. Uh, Corrupt politicians are a dime a dozen. uh, But we don't just see this in politics or in business alone. Unfortunately, we see this even in the church. few years ago, Christianity Today began releasing a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill and it chronicled how Mark Driscoll and his prideful cult of personality eventually led to the implosion of a major church one of the biggest churches in the country and one of the most influential in Seattle and again, a powerful leader was brought down by, among other things, his own self-interest how do we respond to this? What is a Christian reaction to pride and to egotism? I don't have all the answers today, uh, but we'll explore a bit more what the Bible has to say. Uh, But first, would you you just pray with me uh, for this message? Father, um, you know that I am weak, that I am on my own. These words, um, they don't mean much, but, but they're your words, and I pray that you would move powerfully through them, that you would... Uh, transform all of us today um, even if it's just bit by bit um, challenge us with your word, Lord and pray these things in your son's name in Jesus' name, amen well good morning um, by the way welcome to Hope if you haven't already been welcomed by someone Um, if you're visiting or watching on the live stream uh, my name's Wes, I'm not usually the one who's giving the sermon. In fact, uh, it's, it's really a pleasure to be here today because oftentimes I'm just not even in this service. In fact, the rest of this month, I'm going to be out with the kids again because um, that's kind of what I do here. I work with the kids and with the youth. Um, so usually we would be in the midst of a sermon series on um, our story and God's story, uh, what we've been calling table read, where we've kind of been taking a 1,000-foot view look at the Bible uh, book by book, or even, like, group of books by group of books. Um, and that's that's even opposed to what we would normally do, where we might take more of a verse-by-verse verse, uh, look through entire books, but not all on one Sunday, but throughout weeks, months, um, a greater period of time. But today, I'm taking a bit of a middle ground. Um, instead of preaching on the next grouping of books, I'm actually going to focus on a theme that uh, So it won't be any one passage, you'll hear many passages today, and we'll be thinking a lot more about what this uh, particular theme is all about from a scriptural perspective. And I encourage you to think of this as uh, more of a reflection on what's true in scripture. If you're well acquainted with the Bible, my aim isn't so much uh, to teach you something new as it is to remind you of what's so potent and what's so compelling about God's word. And if you're new to us, if you're exploring, if you're not yet following Jesus, if this ancient faith uh, is kind of new to you, uh, I hope you'll hear something of the beauty of Jesus in this. Uh, what makes him special? What makes what makes the Bible and, and the Christian faith just so different, so radical even? Um, it's worth mentioning, I think, that as I prepared this week, I did not think a lot about what the overarching st- uh, story of Scripture is. It's really hard to distill into like one particular thing so really this is just me pulling one theme out um, and I thought a lot about oh, God is the king of the universe he's the king over his creation he's building a kingdom and the good news of Jesus is that he's continually setting up that kingdom and we sometimes call that the upside down kingdom because God does things differently he's always upending the way things are commonly done by the world, by the culture by the way human beings typically like to do it out of self-interest. And so I asked myself a question, what does it mean to be a citizen of this upside-down kingdom? Or or better yet, how are we to live as citizens in God's upside-down kingdom? How do we act? How do we operate? The Bible has a lot of good answers. But today we're going to focus on one in particular, and that's the idea of, of acting with humility, of being humble one of the best ways to live and to act as citizens of God's upside-down kingdom is simply to be humble in everything we do. Scripture teaches um, at least three different facets of humility, and that's kind of how I'm going to look at it this morning. Three ways we need to look at our ability to live uh, more humbly. And those are humility before God, humility in our interactions with other people, and humility regarding ourselves. So let's take a closer look at those three facets, starting with that first one. We live and we act as citizens in God's upside down kingdom by being humble before God. And to better unpack this, let's first think a little bit about what humility means. So the Bible uses a lot of different words um, in both Greek and Hebrew to indicate the idea of humility. Uh, usually, we're talking about lowliness. Uh, oftentimes, that means status. Lowly in status, sometimes it's lowly in wealth. Um, But but no matter how you think of it, it's a loneliness. And these words can also uh, refer to a modest self-reflection. Not thinking too much of yourself. That might be how somebody would describe themselves in the Bible using those those words for humility in the Hebrew and Greek. One English uh, definition says humility is a freedom from pride and arrogance. In other words, it's the opposite of pride. We might think of humility and hubris as, as two sides of a spectrum or two sides of a coin. They're, they're kind of polar opposites. And I think that lines up well with the way scripture denounces pride and elevates humility, which is interesting in and of itself. Another dictionary says humility is the feeling or attitude that you have no special importance that makes you better than others. We could also say that humility is a posture in which we don't overvalue ourselves. C.S. Lewis described humility not as thinking less of ourselves, but as thinking of ourselves less. All of these are great definitions, and it'd be really nice to have one that just kind of packs all that in there. I'm not going to try to do that this morning. But I hope you have a sense, maybe, of what humility is, or maybe even more importantly, what humility isn't about. We begin our conversation about humility with our orientation to God, because if humility is, as Lewis put it, thinking of ourselves less, then conversely, we should think more of others, and that actually begins with God. Typically speaking, humble people recognize that everything they have is a gift from God, and that's important because humility requires gratitude. A gratitude that realizes that nothing that we have is a result of our own competence. God is the very source of our existence. He is the provider of all that sustains us. We also start our conversation about humility with with God because He's our model of perfect humility, especially when we think about Jesus. Uh, Part of why Jesus came as a human being, I think, is is because it it, it was condescending. He was coming to our level it's hard to understand humility when you're looking at God and saying, he's so different from me, there's no way I can attain to that. And, and it's still true that there's no way we can perfectly attain to that. Uh, but there's comfort in looking at a Savior who's both God and human. And so he's our model. Zechariah 9.9 actually prophesied that the coming Messiah would be humble. So it's actually no surprise that Jesus exercised great humility And Jesus regularly demonstrates his humility before God himself by submitting to the Father's will. This willingness to be humble might seem strange to us, though, because in Romans 8.29, Jesus called uh, the firstborn of all creation. And you might even remember uh, when we were reading the call to worship, Colossians 1, same wording, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And from a biblical perspective, Jesus' status as the firstborn means that the entire created order is his inheritance. Uh, In the ancient world, the firstborn typically had what we call the birthright. And to be the firstborn of all creation indicates that Jesus had a right to everything he created. He's the rightful king. Abraham Kuyper famously said, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. But Philippians 2, 6, or 7 also tells us that Jesus didn't exploit this exalted status for self-being. Instead, he became a human being, serving and living among the poor. He showed love to people who hated him, and he confronted those who abused their power at the expense of the powerless. Then we see his humble submission come to the ultimate test in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed that the Father's will would be done. And after living a selfless life, a perfect life, as a suffering servant, he was crucified. This is big, because Jesus' submission to crucifixion was the ultimate act of humility. And though we can't emulate that part, we can't emulate Jesus perfectly, our own journey of humility means submitting to Jesus as we carry our own crosses and follow him. Uh, one of my favorite movies growing up is uh, a movie called Rudy. Rudy. Maybe you've seen it. The film tells the story of a young man, nicknamed Rudy, who longs to play football for the University of Notre Dame. And this is back in the 1970s. Uh, But he he lacks the academic qualifications to even be admitted to the school, let alone the athletic ability to make a football team. So it's a pretty lofty goal. And for a while, Rudy kind of lets it just be a pipe dream. He lets it end, he decides after high school he's gonna work at a steel mill with his father and his brother And that's just it, a dream deferred. But the dream still kind of lingers with him. It lives in the back of his mind. And after a close friend of Rudy's dies, he decides to take action toward achieving this dream of his. He quits his job, he packs a bag, and he leaves for South Bend. But he's also realistic. He knows he's not going to be accepted in Notre Dame. Uh, So he visits, once he gets to South Bend, a priest named Father Kavanaugh. He's looking for advice. He's looking for spiritual wisdom, and uh, you know, after speaking with him, this this priest helps him uh, get enrolled into a, a nearby college. And the idea is, hey, if I work hard, maybe I can get the grades to be admitted to Notre Dame, and I can I can have a shot at, at trying out for that football team. And so Rudy gets to work, um, but he struggles. The way is difficult for Rudy. Um, there's he's he's wrestling with homelessness. He's discovers he has dyslexia, which explains why he's had this historic and ongoing struggle with his schoolwork. And nothing comes easy to him, and he's unsure if he'll even really be able to live out this dream after all. So Rudy visits Father Kavanaugh again, and he wonders aloud if maybe he just doesn't have enough faith, maybe he's not praying enough. Father Kavanaugh kindly responds that he doesn't think that's really the problem. Father Kavanaugh says, praying is something we do in our own time, but the answers come in God's time. He then tells Rudy that in his many years of ministry, all he can affirm for sure is that there is a God and we're not him. Despite being released 30 years ago, I won't spoil the rest of the movie for you, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but the point that I think Father Kavanaugh was trying to make to Rudy in this moment of trial is uh, is ultimately that humility recognizes God's sovereignty in things, perhaps especially the hard things. This can be discouraging because it means God is the one ultimately who humbles us. And as someone who's deeply motivated to be competent, to be self-reliant, I really struggle with this. Uh, but scripture demonstrates that humility comes from God's own hand, whether we would welcome it or not. So. Why not receive it? Why not welcome it? Why not ask for God to humble you? Ask for it outright. Humility increases when we're willing to be humbled by God. Growing in humility can be a painful journey, but that's because it means killing our pride. Killing it. God wants to take our harmful pride and turn it into helpful humility, but first we need to recognize our prideful tendencies. Ask God to help us put them to death. That would be my first call of action to you today. Put pride to death. And if you're thinking I'm not that prideful, think again. <laughs> Evaluate yourself. Ask God to help you put away selfishness and pride. Jesus Jesus taught us uh, in Matthew twenty three twelve that those who wish to be great must be humble. And many places in Scripture, uh, command us to humble ourselves. Ephesians 4.2, 1 Peter 3.8, 1 Peter 5, six. When we don't humble ourselves, God does it. And that can be even more painful. Pride says, I'm going to do it my way. But humility says, I'm going to do it God's way. The second way we can live and act as citizens of God's upside-down kingdom is through humility in our actions and our interactions with other people. As I mentioned already, if we think of ourselves less, then we should think of others more. This starts with God, but also extends to our fellow human beings who are made in the image of God. Everybody here is made in the image of God. We may not realize it, but humility actually restores human dignity by insisting that we love our neighbors as ourselves. In this way, humility is actually an action. And if everyone loved others the way um, that they wanted to be treated, uh, we'd have a true utopia, wouldn't we? All our needs would be met because we'd each be meeting each other's needs. It's almost mind-bending to think about, but blessing the world in this way is the essence of life in the kingdom of God. We know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And this example can motivate us to commit ourselves to serving others, considering their own interests above our own. Uh, humility is paired with justice and mercy in Micah 6 eight, where God tells his people to seek justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. Seeking justice and loving mercy are things we do for others, often I think because that's what we would want others to do for us, and again, this is humility. In what ways are you seeking the welfare of others? How are you seeking justice and mercy? Does your ambition only serve you? Or does it serve God and others? Do you seek to serve or to be served? Are you focused on greatness according to the world? Where you are at the center? Or are you seeking out true greatness? As a kid, I used to love Fred Rogers, and his show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, Maybe some of you did, too. If you're on the younger side, you have no idea who Mr. Rogers is. Maybe you're more familiar with Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Also great. Uh, I I admit, I've watched it uh, recently. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, I I loved that show as a kid. And as an adult, I, I think I love Fred Rogers even more because I can see just how remarkable he truly was. Later in life, Mr. Rogers once told a story about a letter he received. He said, a high school student wrote to ask me, what was the greatest event in American history? I couldn't say. However, I suspect that like so many great events, it was something very simple and very quiet with little or no fanfare, such as someone forgiving someone else for a deep hurt that eventually changed the whole whole course of history. The really important great things are never center stage of life's dramas. They're always in the wings. That's why it's so essential for us to be mindful of the humble and the deep rather than the flashy and the superficial. If you've spent much time listening to Fred Rogers, his response is probably not that surprising to you. He always had a simple yet sage-like reaction to things. And the language of childhood was always kind of baked into the way he spoke to people, all people. There are many ways Mr. Rogers could have answered that young person. He could have mentioned the moon landing in 1969 or the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. But instead, he suggested that perhaps something no one ever saw except for the people involved, directly involved, something as simple as forgiveness, could be a moment of tremendous greatness. Let me suggest to you that humility is true greatness. Jesus said in Matthew eighteen four, that whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And a big piece of that is how we love and serve others. So humility means developing a servant's heart and fighting against those inner desires to elevate ourselves. Use that energy instead to praise God for how he uses you. Give God the credit. Reject the me-centered mentality of our affluent uh, Western culture. Embrace the selfless, selflessness of humility. Seek to restore the dignity of your fellow image bearers. Uh, when I started out uh, in Hope Kids many years ago now, I didn't think I'd eventually work in children's ministry. But I knew that Hope needed help in the children's ministry, so I signed up to help with the classroom management. And then over time, I agreed to teach. As I continued to get to know the kids and I submitted myself to the needs of the church, God seemed to gift me more and more with the desire and the ability to serve in this way. Sometimes that's how he calls us, little by little. Uh, But sometimes being humbled isn't so smooth. My wife, Michelle, and I have hosted children in foster care and my village ministries over the years. And I have to tell you, um, there's been some really hard times, really hard days. Good days too, but also ones that have really pushed me. Exhausting days, traumatic days. Uh, Boy, I I wish I spoke more Spanish days. Uh, Why is this kid screaming? Why won't he stop days? Lord, please show me what to do, what to say. In these moments, days, it's humble and this kind of service might not ever get any easier, but the need is still there. Are you willing to be uncomfortable in order to grow in humility? God exalts the humble and to the humble he requires service. What might God be calling you to do in order to grow in humility toward others? It might not be foster care or children's ministry, but I'm telling you this morning it's something find a way we can live and act as citizens of God's upside-down kingdom is by developing humility regarding ourselves. Humility is a posture. It's a heart attitude. It's understanding ourselves properly in light of who God is and who we are and then acting on that. And so humility requires deeply honest self-reflection. Jesus said in Matthew 5-3 that those who are poor in spirit would inherit the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit means that those who admit to an absolute lack of uh, spiritual self-sufficiency will inherit eternal life. That means humility is actually a prerequisite to becoming a Christian. It's just like our salvation, and at the end of the day, humility is produced by divine action. Just like we need God to call us to salvation, we need him to produce humility within us. Humility is an attribute of God, um, which we witness in Jesus. But we're also capable of living out that particular attribute. We're capable of expressing humility. It's part of our image bearing. And for believers, it's part of our witness. One moment where the disciples had their humility humility tested was actually at the Last Supper, the Passover meal, where uh, Jesus... Uh, shared with his friends right before he was betrayed and then crucified. And usually uh, in Jesus' interactions with his disciples, they're kind of a prideful bunch. They're always bugging Jesus, asking him, how can I be great? Lord, can I sit next to you? Can I be at your right hand? Give me the best seat at the table. They never seem to understand the important things Jesus was trying to tell them. But that night at the Last Supper, When Jesus reveals to uh, one of them, or to all of them, that one of them would betray him, their reaction was actually kind of surprising. As Trevin Wax points out, we might expect them to accuse one another, to point the finger at anyone else but themselves. Maybe it's Peter. He thinks he's so devoted. Maybe it's John. He loses his temper a lot and just can't control himself. Maybe he's mad at Jesus. It's probably Simon. Jesus isn't his out like Simon, and Simon just wants to go back to his old life of trying to overthrow Rome. Maybe it's Matthew. The money from the tax booth is calling to him. But instead of doing this, they point the finger back at themselves. They ask, is it me, Lord? The disciples finally start to get it. Each one is finally more concerned with the plank in their own eye than the speck of dust in their brother's eye. Earlier we heard Luke 18, 9-14, read that parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector who are going before God. And in this story, the Pharisee has great pride. He's boasting in his religious devotion, while the tax collector is humbled by the crushing weight of his own sin. Do you know your own need for God's mercy like this tax collector? Paul saw himself as the least of the apostles, as the chief of sinners. And like Paul, the truly humble will boast in the grace of God and in the cross, not in themselves. Humility means embracing our weaknesses. God promises grace to the humble. He opposes the arrogant. Therefore, I again encourage you to put your pride to death, however it shows up in your life. Examine your life for hidden and not so hidden areas of pride. Pride in your actions, pride in your words, pride in your thoughts. Perhaps especially the pride in your thoughts. The Heidelberg Catechism uh, reminds us that our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong to God. If you're following Jesus today, there's no use in boasting anymore in yourself. And to that point, if you're following Jesus, you'll probably already know that God is humbling you. There are many ways that God humbles us. We can be humbled by disease, aging, injury, uh, disability, the death of loved ones, uh, the end of a relationship, family confrontations, a lot of things maybe I'm not even thinking of. But when we abandon ourselves for the will of God, there's no room anymore for pride. Life is full of obstacles and often not, uh, God uses those things to humble us. And being humbled, if we embrace it, can actually grow us. I, I just, I just want to say I'm, I'm preaching this to myself today. I'm telling you this because I need it too. We all need it. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in the Bible's narrative that we forget that the story is calling us to action. The story is meant to give us hope, yes. It's also supposed to shape our character. Consider asking yourself some of these questions. Um, I actually found these from a retired pastor named William Farley. Um, Ways that you can evaluate where you might be on that path to humility. So here are some of those questions. When confronted, do you immediately suspect that you are right? Or do you rush to defend yourself? Guilty. When a disagreement, when in a disagreement, are you better at listening or talking, yielding or demanding? Are you unnecessarily critical of others, or do you speak graciously? Do you regularly consider the needs of others as more important than your own? When you make a mistake, are you better at asking forgiveness, or do you double down in self-justification? Do you find it easier to talk about your weaknesses or your strengths? Do you argue about things that don't matter? How are we to live as citizens of God's upside-down kingdom? By embracing humility before God, humility in our interactions with other people, and humility in how we view ourselves. Humility flourishes when we think less about ourselves, more about our service to God and to others, and in the end, humility gives God credit for all of it, since God is the one who humbles us, and it's for his upside-down kingdom that we seek uh, to enable greater flourishing. I hope you don't walk away from this service today thinking that I've said everything there is to say about humility. Growing in humility is part of our sanctification and it will take our whole lives. That means I still have a lot to learn about humility and so do you. And even at the end of my life and your earthly life, you and I will still have a lot to learn about humility. But I hope I will have grown and I pray that I'll still know what true greatness is and I hope you will too please pray with me father we, we thank you for the way that you reveal yourself in the word and also the way that you have revealed yourself through Jesus we're so grateful that um, Lord you you took on flesh you became a human that you condescended that you spoke to us in human language and and uh, and made it understandable for us. Lord, we're, we're feeble, we are weak, we're incapable creatures, um, but you empower us. Nothing that we do is because of our own competence. Um, no amount of preparation, no amount of, of thinking we know it all can save us. Lord, we thank you that you save us. We pray that you would humble us, that you would, and that you would empower us to live that well. We pray especially that we wouldn't just be humble uh, to be great, but that we would understand true greatness, that, that really we serve to be able to continue to serve. We humble ourselves so that, that we would serve one another, and knowing that our own needs would be met in that same kind of a system. And so, Lord, we just pray that you continue to expand your kingdom um, and that you, would, that you would grow us as mature disciples of Jesus. Mature, humble disciples. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.